This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Simon. And I'm Adi. And today we're thrilled to have Professor Peter Moskos with us. Professor Moskos is a professor in the Department of Law, Police Science, and Criminal Justice Administration at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is the director of John Jay College's NYPD Executive Master's Program and is a former Baltimore City Police Officer. In addition to his primary position at John Jay College, Moskos is a faculty member in CUNY's doctoral program in sociology, has taught introductory criminal justice classes at LaGuardia Community College in the Queens, and is a senior fellow of the Yale Urban Ethnography Project. He's also the founder of the Violence Reduction Project. He's written three books, Cop in the Hood, In Defense of Flogging, and Greek Americans, relying primarily on oral history methods. He's currently working on another such work focused on New York City's uh, crime rate drop, told from the perspective of police officers who worked through it. Thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Moskos. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So um, how have the problems of policing in America evolved since you worked as a police officer 20 years ago? Well, it depends on what, what those problems are, how they've evolved. Well, certainly police misconduct um, and police use of force, lethal use of force in particular, uh, there's been a lot more awareness of that. But I don't know if that's the problem has changed so much as the analysis of the problem. I also, um, the other, uh, I think, big difference is that people are less concerned with uh, crime and violence because until last year, they were they were trending down for um, 20 years. So I think uh, uh, police or people's perspective of police any, and maybe even police uh, lost a bit of focus in, in the in the preventing crime department. And on that topic of awareness of sort of use of lethal force, how do you think that coverage has changed over the last decade or so? Obviously, there's been a lot of viral moments, including George Floyd killing. But what are some other areas in which you think that the media has sort of attra been attracted to this issue? I, I think the key is that they suddenly have been attracted to the issue. It, it is um, a result of social media and the fact that these things are recorded. It was rare to be carrying around a video camera. Um, you know, the, the beating of Rodney King, um, well, the, the riots happened in 92 with a beating, I think, was a year or two earlier. Uh, that was a huge deal, partly simply because it was caught on video and that hadn't ha really happened before. Um, so the idea that everything is recorded now, um, I think, is a, is, a, is a real game changer. Um, it's, it's, it's here. It's inevitable. It's probably um, overall, I think it's a, it is a force for good. But it does um, it, it changes things because a single incident can have more importance than long-term trends, progress. Um, it can also be, quite frankly, you know, it, it, incidents can be tragic, but they're not necessarily indicative. So um, anyway, but that, that's where we are today. Um, so you've worked as a cop in Baltimore, and you've been studying a lot of cops in New York City. How national do you think those experiences are? And do you think the findings that you would find in Baltimore and New York could apply to police in Milwaukee or Los Angeles? I'm a little hesitant to say because I don't know. Um, my, I'd like to think they're applicable elsewhere, but I, I can only talk about, confidently at least, I can talk about anything, but confidently I can talk about the things I know. So um, I, I do think there are certain patterns um, and similarities among East Coast cities uh, or, or even Midwest cities, be it Chicago, Boston, Baltimore, um, New York City. You know, New York is always a bit of an outlier just because of its sheer size. Um, but they're very definite different patterns if you look at urban versus rural policing, if you look at policing just east of the Mississippi and west of the Mississippi. And I don't think it's the river that makes that distinction so important, but there's something going on between the east and the west. 
um, where you, you and things that are quantifiable, they, they change very much um, based on, on, on other factors. Um, but I think there's a similarity to um, urban policing in, in, in a high violence environment, for instance, that, that, are, that are more constant than other places. But, the, but there are certainly big differences as well. So of those police departments that you're familiar with and even worked in, can you tell us a little bit more about what is the culture within these departments and are there any idiosyncrasies that you notice that really stood out to you versus like any other organization that you might encounter in a line of work? It's, um, I think that the, idi- the idiosyncrasies you see are idiosyncrasies of the city, um, not so much the police department. Not, I mean, I think there is a police culture. I don't want to discount that, but in terms of idiosyncrasies, you know, Baltimore is a idiosyncratic town. Um, And that comes out in, you know, the police department to some extent reflects the city. Um, And so as the city is different, the police department's going to reflect that. And they, you know, cities have different cultures and histories. But in the day-to-day operation, I don't think they're so important because cops everywhere are getting the same type of calls and dealing with situations um, in, 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 in much the same matter. So, I mean, I'm sort of charmed by idiosyncrasies of, of, of Baltimore and, and any place. Um, but no, I don't think that's what defines police culture. How do police unions kind of inf- influence that police culture? Unions are interesting. Um, they reflect the conservative, um, there I, and now I can use shorthand like, like Trumpian side of, of the police world, which is already dominantly conservative and and and, and Trump supporting um, compared to the general population. Um, it often is sort of a retro old guard part of policing. Um, in that sense, it's not truly representative police officers, um, but many of them you, unions matter. They're they're you know the PR they can do is can be quite depends on the de- union, but. They can be quite counterproductive to policing, in my opinion. Some some unions are better than others and just more rational, less bombastic, more interested in solutions than owning the libs and that kind of thing. Um, but there are police departments that don't have unions, and they don't seem to be any better. Um, I think unions are a little bit of a scapegoat, um, to, uh, but their power is limited. Well, most cops don't. They just care about the contract. Um, they're not into the politics of the union. I would love to know what the turnout is even in, in elections for union hands, and I don't know. Um, I don't even have a clue. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't think it has to be – I don't know if it has to be released. I should look harder. I would love to know how many cops even care enough to vote for the union president. Um, I, I, look, I'm pro-union in general. I am a union member. Uh, so I'm a little hesitant to criticize one union because I don't like their politics, which is the case of the FOP or the PBA, which are the two big police unions. Um, I still think unions um, have a purpose in America and, and should be supported. But, yeah, I, I really think police unions are often their, their own worst enemy in, in, in how they behave in the public statements they release. So you mentioned that unions are a, kind of a scapegoat that's kind of a very classic um, target of a lot of the current discourse on policing. What else do you think uh, the current discourse gets most wrong about policing? Um. <sighs> There's so much. Uh, I think some of it, you know, I don't know if this is the most significant, but it relates to all of everything we've discussed so far. Um, there's a big cl- class element to policing, working class element. Um, you've, and I think it's growing, and that's unfortunate. Um, but a lot of what people perceive, whether it's police culture, union culture, um, even 
uh, use of force um, is, I think, very much reflects a class element and how and the, the, the classes that police officers generally come from, uh, which is with notable exceptions, um, myself included, uh, but generally not the professional white collar class. So more and more, I think you see a opposition to police officers as a become a proxy for sort of um, a certain level of uh, class snobbery and class hatred and people looking down at, at other people because they really because they have to do a job that 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 the people complaining about are privileged enough not to have to do. And again, there are exceptions to that. Um, but I think that actually is a big part of the divide and that has grown considerably in the past few years. Now, you talked about this sort of um, like working culture within sort of police departments. We've seen union ships sort of decline in the private and public sector. Do you think there's a particular reason why unions have remained sort of strong within police departments? Well, it's tough to fight them. Um, despite all the police criticism of, of, well, forever, but, you know, some of it justified, some of it not justified, um, police remain very popular and um, wanted, more, far more so than opponents give credit for. People want more policing. Politicians uh, generally, with a few like local city council exceptions, and maybe in cities like Minneapolis or Seattle, um, politicians don't win elections by criticizing police. Um, and that's because people um, in all communities want more policing, especially high crime communities. Uh, so I think there, you know, it's 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 difficult for politicians to to go against police, and then of course the union can be an amorphous target because it's not the union is not the police organization. Um, often they're not even technically unions in a weird way. Um, so it's, I don't, I, there's probably, there's not much political benefit in, in attacking those unions. And even if you were to get rid of them, I don't actually think policing would improve, uh, though maybe the PR might a little bit. Um, but I, I yeah, I, I think the, and then, you know, I'll be, it's tough to go after any uh, public sector union because it's very difficult to fire workers, which is partly what unions are, are blamed for. And, and I would say justly, uh, blamed for that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's what what's the end goal? Is it to get rid of unions? Is it to improve policing? Those aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, but from a political standpoint, I think it's really tough to to be to be seen as anti uh, police. Um, what circumstances can you think of in which reducing police presence would yield a societal benefit? Um, well, that's what I'm debating tonight. Um, I, I th there's a big if to that. Um, right now, given the cards we have, I, I really don't see any. Uh, that said, I can be a little bit idealistic and say, oh, there are things I would absolutely love police not to deal with that police wouldn't like, uh, wouldn't, would be very happy to give up responsibility for things related to, um, to, to, to homelessness, things related to mental illness, um, things related even to crime. Uh, police are a last resort. And um, the fact that anybody is needed to respond to these things means that society has failed at some level. So, um, yeah, it would be great if police didn't have to, res you know, respond to any of it. It would be great if no one ever called for police, but that's unrealistic. Um, so the idea that really, that police presence is the problem rather than responsive to the problems that already exist, I think that's, that's, that's the, the faulty thinking. Mm -hmm. um, sure, as a goal, we could say it would be great if we could reduce calls for police service, but cutting police usually only increases calls for police service. So there's a bit of putting the cart before the horse when it comes to reform. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is to homelessness or, or, or mental health issues. Uh, it's not my field. Um, you know, I have some opinions like everyone does. Uh, so let those experts solve it. Um, 
but they're not. So, and then they blame police for for the problems. Um, but I think it's very dangerous to um, to say we're we're not going to. But people don't say we're not going to fix these problems. Mm-hmm. But to not have these problems fixed and then say, oh, and we don't want police responding. Well, f- you know, figure it out. Uh, but from a police standpoint, I think we can, you know, we can certainly try and make things better and more accountable. Um, but no, I think less policing by and large is, is dangerous. You mentioned that um, part of the issue is that the police aren't necessarily responsive to some of the challenges that are in the community. What sorts of training or resources do you think police departments need to start addressing issues in a more productive way if they're not doing so already? There's a, a lot of it is nitty gritty and boring. Um, not that, you know, not that it shouldn't be said. Let me be more general though, and then you can try and narrow me down if you, if you want to, but some departments do a lot better than other departments. And by better, I mean, um, less use of force, um, less crime, fewer arrests, fewer complaints against policing, um, anything you can quantify and a lot of policing you can't quantify. And that's part of the difficulty of, of, of reform. Um, there's a lot of art in policing. Uh, but in things you can quantify, some departments do so much better. If we care about, um, if, we, if we want cops to shoot fewer people, we could look at cities where cops shoot a lot, a lot, shoot a lot fewer people, like New York City. It's about a third the national average. Um, then we should go to places where cops shoot a lot of people. And these are places like Salt Lake City, um, Albuquerque. Um, uh, Bakersfield, Riverside, um, a lot of medium-sized cities uh, out west, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Aurora, Colorado. There, there are many times the national average in police use of force. And, and perhaps that's um, inevitable based on other factors, be it uh, gun laws, drug type of drug use, things like that. But at some point, some places are doing a lot better and some are doing worse. So why don't we, what we should do is go to New York City and say, hey, what are you doing right? How did you get use of um, lethal force so low, because it didn't used to be that way decades ago in New York City. Um, it's been a conscious change with through various policies and training. Um, and to then try to transfer that to cities that do worse. But a lot of the focus um, counterproductively is on the cities that tend to do better. Um, and I think part of the reason they do better is because there's more uh, focus on those cities in a way. You know, they, they, they were held accountable. They improved. Um, but it, there's no... Sing, it's always a bad analogy to use. There's no silver bullet solution to that, um, but but it is issues of of, of recruitment, training. Um, that's huge, by the way, recruitment and training, and it's not easy, and it's also getting worse. The re- recruitment part, um, but 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 policies um, and and tactics, yeah, all those things matter. Whether whether you have one or two person patrols, um, research is mixed, but two person patrols at some level uh, must reduce uh, police involved uh, shootings. Um, Though it's, it's hard to show that. It's hard to get a proper experiment. But two-person patrol is expensive. Um, you know, so are we willing to spend the money on it? Um, part of what's frustrating and, and relates to defund is, is money is not necessarily the solution. Um, you know, it's what you do with that money. But there's no way we're going to get more for, for less. And, and, and when police department budgets are cut, and it, it was just a few cities that did defund, um, but it's, it's, it's very tough to cut funds in any organization where 80 percent or so of the budget goes to labor. Um, so you're cutting basically all those extras that people um, like me <laughs> say are part of the solution. Um, yeah, so you know, to some extent, you get what you pay for. You don't, policing isn't cheap, and you can't get it on the cheap. Um, but absolutely, there are, there are things that can be done to make, make policing better. I'm just switching gears a bit. It's been 10 years since you wrote the pro- provocatively titled In Defense of Flogging, which in my opinion contains a thesis that's a bit more nuanced than its title. 
so has your understanding of punishment and rehabilitation changed since then, uh, if at all? Or? A little bit. Yeah. Um, because of the title, I, I feel I have to explain yeah. the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is meant to be a provocative title. It's really yeah. an anti-incarceration book that was um, written in opposition to mass incarceration, but it very much focuses on the concept of punishment. And, and, the, and the gambit is if you're convicted of a crime, it doesn't matter if you did it, but you're convicted and you're um, given a sentence of five years in prison, uh, would you perhaps choose uh, 10 lashes, Singapore-style lashes, and be sent home? And that's it. Um, now, we don't flog people in this country because it's, um, it's brutal, it's inhumane, it has a history of racism, it's linked to slavery, all of that. Um, but I think 95% of people would choose that over prison. Um, so the point is, if we don't flog for very good reasons, um, why do we send people to something that's worse? Um, or at least why not give people the choice? So we were left with a system of incarceration that is such a failure um, that was never designed to be punishment. Um, and we now think it's normal. Um, it was invented in America. Uh, it's, it wasn't an evolution. So that's what I'm trying to highlight in the book. Um, I would say recently, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say my, well, yeah, I changed, but I, I, I have come to, I think we actually need even more the idea that people who misbehave deserve some punishment. I don't think that's a crazy idea. Not necessarily severe, not life-altering, um, but recently through um, decriminalization, through progressive prosecution, we see more and more of a call to end punishment, um, that people just need help and resources. Um, and I don't think that's enough. Um, I do think bad behavior should have consequences, um, moderate in proportion, you know, legal, constitutional. Um, but I don't think we're going to reform criminal justice if we give up the idea that that punishment serves a role. It doesn't even have to be the primary role, but it needs to it needs to be in there. So we talked a little bit earlier about some of the challenges with the way the media might portray or represent some of these issues in a sort of media environment that is so captivated by viral moments. Um, for example, the like criticism of the New York Police Department, how do you go about telling a story that is more nuanced and explains that there has been this incredible drop in crime rates? It's a good question, and I don't know. And it's not just a drop in crime. It's a drop in, 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 in um, a, aggressive policing and prosec for prosecution and punishment also were declining. A lot of things were moving in the right direction. Everything was basically trending well in America um, until you know, roughly 2014 and 15, but last year it all just went haywire. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I had the answer. Um, we think, I, I, I honestly don't know, but it, to some extent, a lot, at some point I think things will get bad and people will say enough of this um, and say, no, actually, um, we do need some policing here again. And um, at some point I think the voice of people in at-risk communities will be heard more and will push back, um, particularly against white progressives who seem to know best how minority communities should be policed. I, I, that bothers me at some level, that, that somewhere between paternalism and, and, and racism in that. Um, if, if, you know, look, you've got some very wealthy communities with very little crime and very little violence. Um, if we can abolish police, let's start there. It should be an easier uh, lift. Um, no, it's always, we always want to experiment in other people's neighborhoods. So I think giving other people voice, um, because people want more policing, they also want better policing. It's not that complicated, but that nuance seems to be lost in a lot of people. Um, so a lot of it, I think, has to do with listening. Um, a lot of it has to do with um, avoiding ideology. 
on all sides because um, there are a lot of different ideology. And by that, I mean, if, if you can tell me the solution before I tell you the problem, you're, you're probably an ideologue. Um, so, you know, people have, I don't know, but we have to, you know, I, right now, it, I don't think things are going in the right direction. So I, I don't know what's needed. Um, yeah, but, you know, may, maybe in, in something else will come the, the, the flavor of the month and, and people will move on. Um, but I say this, as you can, somewhat frustratingly, because um, as someone who's been working in this field for over 20 years now, um, it really it became amateur hour in the, in the reform movement last year, and a lot of it was, was counterproductive. Um, I'm for reform if it's good, uh, but if it actually makes things worse, um, then, then don't do it just because it's reform. Um, but I don't know. You know, you can't tell people how to think. And there's, you know, you see the murder of George Floyd and it does shock the conscience. So you don't want to tell people not to be shocked. And, and you know, numbers and data don't tend to counter that. So so I don't know. Um, so speaking about numbers and data, uh, we kind of live in a, an increasingly data-driven world. And yet in your line of work, you tend to focus a lot on like oral history methods. So how have you kind of navigated that shift uh, as a researcher best known for qualitative research? Um, well, the, I shifted to, to this current book as an oral history. The current book I'm working on on the New York City drop is, is an oral history. The previous ones were not oral histories. Um, in Defense of Flogging was, you know, basically a long essay. It's a short book. My book on Greek Americans was historical, and, and, and Cop in the Hood was, uh, was mixed methods, qualitative and quantitative, based on my Ph.D. research um, uh, sociology uh, at Harvard. So I, I did. I was a cop while doing my research, and that that was mixed. But I certainly have a, a bias towards um, talking to people and hearing what they have to say. Partly because people tend to um, people who are involved in activities tend to know a lot about those activities. Um, some of them are very smart, um, and research is not best done in the ivory tower. That said, quantitative data. Well, they're both good sort of ways. The reality checks on each other. If you have a theory based on what a few people say and the data is indicative that what they're saying is, you know, wrong or an outlier, or, um, you know, that's important to know. So you, you really, I mean, the, the best research um, needs both. But partly it's a personal preference in I do like talking to people. Um, partly it's it's I, I think that um, telling, giving voices to people and telling it in their voice is better at convincing other people if that's the goal. Um, I mean, people still, yeah, I mean, so data is nice. I mean, I, you know, I can be convinced by data, but I don't know. Data can be manipulated. People don't know what to believe. It's not necessarily their fault. Um, so I, I think we need quantitative analysis, um, but there's a certain scribe class aspect to it where, um, um, where it can be misused and misanalyzed and, and people don't know what to make of it. And it, that's not necessarily their fault. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe my... my next book will be macroeconomic theater theory but i and i guarantee it won't I, uh, but um i'm not a, i'm not against statistics it's just also my own knowledge of statistic maxes out at a certain level too so i don't i can't get too deep into it um you mentioned you're currently working on a, an oral history of the new york crime drop is are there any insights in that that you'd like to preview for us yeah you know i've been working on this book for too long i, I mean it's not <laughs> working on it for too long um but uh when i started i thought it would be a purely studs turkle style oral history that people that were interested in what cops in the 90s had to say would read. Um, I think it's becoming more and more relevant. So here's a benefit to procrastination. Um, yeah, I think I think there are definite lessons that um, started in New York that spread to the rest of the country, and they're, they're relatively basic, which is kind of good. 
Um, the main thing that happened um, in uh, in the mid '90s is that police, and this was under when when uh, Bill Bratton took over the first transit and police in New York City, and then the NYPD in New York City. Um, and he said, "We are going to reduce um, crime and fear of crime and disorder." That was a shockingly bold statement at the time because um, the sort of party line going from the Kerner Commission in the late '60s till the mid early mid '90s was that police do not play a role in crime prevention; um, that crime is society's fault, and the best police can do is arrest offenders. Uh, Bratton said, no, um, that's wrong. Um, we are going to bring down crime, and here's how we're going to do it. Now, he could have just been lucky, and it could have been a coincidence, but crime plummeted um, during his tenure as commissioner, um, which you know got a lot of attention because people said it couldn't be done. Um, and, and so some of it was simply changing that fundamental concept of what police can do. Um, and then it was, you know, then you get into organizational uh, factors, but they matter. Um, you know, it's giving local commanders... Uh, more accountability, holding them accountable and giving them more responsibility. Um, collaboration with the community to find out what they want police to work, um, what the problems are. Collaboration with prosecutors to prosecute those who need to be prosecuted um, for, for crimes they've committed. Uh, so there's a, some of it was using data, quantitative data, and it was called CompStat, but it was really just a pin map showing crime was, but it got a lot of attention because he used computers, which was a big deal back then. Um, but it, it really said we care about this stuff. And it's not before that the police department had primarily been concerned with um, st stamping out corruption and um, avoiding scandal and uh, making a certain amount of arrests based on how many crimes were committed. And as long as they did that, there was, they were okay. So to simply get back in the crime prevention game uh, was a big deal. And this, I think, in, this is why the lessons are applicable to today because I see police getting out of that again and basically saying um, or being told that it's not your responsibility anymore. I'm um, just arrest offenders after the fact, and 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 we'll somehow handle the rest. Though that rest isn't being handled. Um, but it was it was a unique uh, moment in in American history and American policing history to see the transformation of New York that happened. Um, just to, you know to give like this happened over a longer period. But th in 1990 there were over 2,100 murders in New York City, and a couple years ago there were under 300. Um, it was, and other crimes reflect that same dramatic drop. That's a lot of people who aren't getting shot and killed, and a lot of trauma that's being saved um, from from at-risk communities. So, I think the lesson of the crime drop. I, I don't think anyone quite understands well what it is, but in as much as it was understood, I think it's being forgotten. Fantastic. And we particularly like to close off these interviews with a quick question on behalf of our student listeners, which is, as a scholar and uh, professor working on one of the most important issues sort of in the political discourse right now. Um, what advice would you give students to either learn more or get involved in the issues or even how to approach an issue when there's so much controversy on both sides? Well, I would say to some extent try and it doesn't sound right to say avoid the controversy. You do have to address the controversy, but don't get distracted by the controversy. Um, I think if I were, um, you know, 25, I'm 50 now, so if I were still in college, um, I would say, one, appreciate the luxury you have of, of a lot of free time to study and learn and, and follow your passion um, because it's rare to have that again, um, maybe in grad school a bit. Um, but, you know, keep reading, keep learning, keep an open mind. Um, and, and you have to have a certain passion or else you're not going to be 
driven and, and what, driven at what you do and you probably won't be that good in what you do. Um, but also keep in mind that, that things change. Um, that's, one, that's one advantage age gives you, gives you a little more perspective. And the things that people may be passionate about today uh, may be largely irrelevant tomorrow. And we'll have new passions that, are, that we can't even conceive of today. Um, but so a little bit of perspective in, in that is needed. But I'd say, look, take advantage of the, uh, of the privileges you do have. Um, and simply that you're a college student uh, in America is a pretty good privilege to have. Um, so so, so in, you know, enjoy it and, and use it for good. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Professor Moscos. Oh, thanks. It's, it's been a great talk. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Mm-hmm.